Before we begin this episode, a few words from this week's sponsors of the show. I'm pleased that once again the sponsor of the show this week is the latest thriller in the Ragdoll series Hangman by acclaimed British crime author Daniel Cole. If you like a good serial killer thriller and you enjoy cat and mouse stuff like The Bone Collector with Denzel Washington or David Finch's cinematic classic Seven, then why not get yourselves all over the latest part of Daniel Cole's Ragdoll series which is out now in paperback from Trapeze Publishers. Hangman is a fast-paced, high-concept thriller that's the follow-up to the 2017 Sunday Times bestseller Ragdoll, and it finds Cole's brilliantly badass character, DCI Emily Baxter, as a fish out of water as she races against time to stop a gruesome killer who's causing the bodies to pile up, and always seems to be one step ahead of the investigation. When you've got a detective with no one she can trust up against a gruesome killer who's got nothing to lose, what's the outcome? Don't worry if you think, oh, but I haven't read Ragdoll. Hangman is as good a standalone thriller as is the latest chapter in a series. It's a series that's already won Daniel many fans in the crime genre, and due to the international success of Ragdoll, he soaked up the pressure to follow this up by making a few tweaks, going down an unconventional route, and in his own words, hopefully surprising everybody by writing an even better story than the first. Sounds good? Well, I think so, and you guys can find out for yourselves in the latest in the Ragdoll series Hangman, which is out now in paperback from all good high street and online bookstores, with a link to get your copy in the show notes of this week's episode. Your life is hanging by a thread, but who's pulling the strings? You can find out in Hangman, which is out now. Do you live in London, and are you already with good intention thinking about how you're going to burn off this Christmas festivities? but you're a bit worried that you'll join a gym and not actually bother going, then why not try E-Squared? Based in London, E-Squared lets you book the coolest, best fitness classes at times and locations that suit you, and it's as simple as a couple of clicks on an app. And E-Squared is a pay-as-you-go service, so there's no feeling guilty for wasting your cash on a monthly gym membership that you don't use. You only pay for the workouts that you attend. And this ranges from yoga to boxing, right through things such as indoor cycling or high-intensity interval training. The E-Squared app is downloadable on iOS and Android, and it's available to try for free now. And if you head there and use the code POD20, that's POD20, you get yourself a free class. E-Squared. It aggregates everything you want and more. Hello all and welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that covers the more obscure and unfamiliar cases from the shores of the UK and Ireland. 
I'm Paul, I'm the show's creator and the true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's good to have you all here joining me today for an hour and a bit of a break away from humdrum, be it work, Christmas shopping, the gym, whatever, I hope it all helps. So thanks very much all, and a special thanks to my new Patreon supporter of the show, that's Jay Losty. It's most kind and appreciated of you Jay, and I hope that you've enjoyed the full length extra episodes as a supporter. I'm working on bonus episode number 12 right now, which will be out on New Year's Day. There are no real Christmas holidays for the enthusiast. But Christmas is still a few weeks away yet, and although there will be a bit of a Yuletide-themed episode, there are still a couple that I've got ready to go before then, which brings me onto this week's episode. It's a case that takes place between South London and Sussex back in 1991, and one that highlights just how dangerous and twisted a person can be and the lengths one person obsessed with leading a fantasy life went to, leading to the savage murder of a young woman. As ever, the episode contains details and descriptions of a crime that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as always. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts as this week we look back at a case I've entitled The Fantasist. I'm sure that we all know one of these people who, shall we say, stretch the truth a bit and live in a bit of a dream world. If you've been to Tenerife, they've been to Elevenerife, that type of person. Many years ago, I used to know an old Welsh security guard named Bill, who had some of the tallest tales that you've ever heard, including, and I swear right, swear blind, that these are all tales that I myself heard him tell. He used to wave to Mick Jagger every Friday on his way to work, He once knocked out Roger Moore with one punch when they worked together in a laundrette in Hampshire. He was the only male solo voice in a 200-strong choir. He once saved someone from a burning lorry by climbing onto it and steering it into a petrol forecourt. And he knew someone who'd walked to Afghanistan from Bridge End. There mustn't have been any buses on that day, obviously. There are countless other stories, there are far too many to list here as I really could be here all day, but my all-time favourite story of Bill's, all time, is that the Doved Powys Police motorcycle display team asked him to be the fella who went on the top of the pyramid, even though Bill was never a copper. I swear, however unreal these tales may sound, they're all tales that Bill came out with. He was a lovely old bloke, he really was, and because he was such a gem, you never had the heart to say to him, Come on, Bill, that's a load of old bollocks, that, isn't it, really? So, as I say, I'm sure that we all know someone like that. I don't know what it is that makes people like this. Do they read or see something, and somewhere in their confused mind, I could do that, becomes, well, I've done that. And most of these people are harmless, they're happy in their own fictional world. I still know a couple of people now, believe me, as I'm sure that you guys do also. But sometimes fantasy stops and it moves on to a different level, crossing over into the real world. Enclosed in the show notes this week is a link to a recent newspaper article from my neck of the woods, concerning a guy who I actually remember as he was a year or two above me in school. It's a bizarre story and he's changed his name from what I remembered him as being called in school, yet it is without question the same guy. It's well worth having a read to see what you think. You may have a chuckle or your thoughts may go out to someone who it seems doesn't have too much of a grip on reality. But occasionally when fantasy crosses into the real world, it goes a bit too far and it takes a much darker turn, as we shall see with the subject of this week's episode. 
The covering letter with the attached CV read as follows. Dear Sir, Madam, I have been working for a relatively small insurance and investment company for about one year. I am currently looking for a permanent position in the travel industry. I would therefore be pleased if you would consider me for a suitable position should one arise. I enclose my CV for your perusal and I look forward to hearing from you in the near future. Yours faithfully, Miss Lynn G. Rogers. 17-year-old Lynn Rogers had made an extensive list of no less than 319 companies that she'd sought out that she was going to try to get a better job at following being made redundant from her job with a South London firm of investment brokers in July 1991. Above all else, Lynn Rogers wanted a job that would allow her to travel and to see a few different places, so she'd put together a CV in the aforementioned covering letter which included a telephone number and address, and began the process of getting these out to prospective employers. And when the opportunity of an interview came away for a lucrative position with a company operating private business jets from Gatwick Airport for flights across Europe, then Lynn jumped at the chance. Lynn was an attractive blonde-haired girl, full of energy and ambition, and a hard worker who had a passion for horses, and with an outlook on life where she was genuinely determined to succeed. She'd done well at school and managed to get seven GCSE passes and with a drive that was instilled in her had made a list of of hundreds of prospective employers and by August 1991 had sent copies of her CV and letter to more than a hundred employment agencies. It was one of these, a firm based in Greenwich in South London who had apparently passed on her details to the Gatwick company who had then gotten in touch with her. So the opportunity to work as cabin crew sounded exactly what Lynn wanted. It sounded glamorous, she'd get the chance to travel, see a bit of the world, and felt it was nothing but a golden opportunity. I mean, how many people would have loved to have get something like that aged 17? Putting on a smartly pressed black business suit and white blouse combination, Lynn thought about the telephone call that she'd received just five days previously. The voice on the phone was charming, confident, and after speaking to Lynn for some time, in a polite and well-spoken voice, a potential employer told Lynn that he'd seen her CV and knew without question that she was exactly what the firm he was a director of were looking for. And although they'd never met, he'd virtually offered Lynn the job over the phone. And to a 17-year-old, it sounded great as well. The firm, Africa Hinterland, operated a fleet of executive aircraft and the job would involve Lynn working from Gatwick Airport, training as a cabin crew member to chaperone business executives on overseas flights. This would involve frequent trips to several European countries and a salary of £15,000 per year, which was more than double the wage that Lynn had received from her last job as a clerk. Almost too good to be true, eh? So after being unemployed for a period of time, and after several knockbacks and non-responses from the CVs that she'd sent out up to then, Lynn was understandably excited and on cloud nine about such an amazing sounding opportunity. So she'd had no hesitation whatsoever about going for an interview, and had arranged to meet with the director at 10am on Wednesday the 4th of September 1991 at London's Charing Cross Station, which was just a short drive from its southeast London home. Lynn had been told by the man on the phone to bring a passport with her and from their meeting at Charing Cross Station they would then travel to Shoreham in Sussex 
where a helicopter would pick them up and fly them the short distance to Gatwick Airport to look at the company offices, which was situated amongst some of the many reputable companies based at the airport that specialise in the profitable trade of business aviation charters. Lynn's father Derek was understandably a bit more feet on the ground about this, as was her boyfriend, 23-year-old Spencer Clark. Both of them thought that this offer sounded just a bit too good to be true, and each advised Lynn to be careful, wanting her to be safe and not wanting to see a set of heart on what may turn out just to be a pipe dream. But the happy-go-lucky teenager just graciously laughed back and reassured them. Both of them were worrying unnecessarily. After all, what harm could she really come to in broad daylight in the centre of London, and then again at Gatwick Airport? Yet Derek couldn't help it though, He'd been extra loving and protective of his two daughters since three years before, in 1988, his wife Jill had collapsed and died. But he put this to the back of his mind, recognising the need to let his headstrong daughter make her own way in the world. Early that Wednesday morning, Lynn was up and spent ages getting ready, choosing a smart and professional looking black business suit outfit, and she could hardly contain her excitement as she combed her shoulder length blonde hair and adjusted her makeup in front of her bedroom mirror. Her father had written her a good look and be careful note in case he'd been up and out at his job as a self-employed carpenter before she left that morning, and he'd left it on the hall table next to the telephone. Hall table telephone, eh? Does anyone still have those? I'm not sure, to be honest. In the event, Derek was still at home when Lynn had come downstairs, so he kissed her on the cheek and wished her best of luck as he watched her go. Waving him goodbye, she left the house in Elmer Road, Catford in South London, that she shared with her father and elder sister Suzanne, got into a red Ford Escort and set off on her way through the rush hour traffic. As red buses and black cabs rule the road in London and make driving there an absolute nightmare, as I have mentioned on the show before, Lynn had decided to take the train to her interview rather than risk being stuck in traffic and struggling to park and being late or missing it, so only a short time after leaving home that morning, she arrived at nearby Hither Green Station, where she parked up in a side street, and then went and caught a pre-arranged train that would take her to Charing Cross Station, which was just seven miles down the line. Lynn had promised to ring her boyfriend Spencer at lunchtime that day to let him know how the interview had gone, so when she failed to call him at his work as a real estate broker, he was surprised but not too concerned and he thought nothing except that there must be a good reason for her not calling. These things often overrun, and Lynn may have indeed been travelling by helicopter, or she could have been at Gatwick, Shoreham, wherever. So Spencer thought that he'd catch up with her later that evening. However, when he went around to her house when he'd finished work, he was concerned to find that Lynn had not yet returned home. Lynn's father, 55-year-old Derek Rogers, and her 20-year-old sister Suzanne were also concerned by now, and phoning the employment agency that had sent Lynn's details to the Gatwick firm Africa Hinterland. Derek's concern turned to anxiety when he found that the number for them had been disconnected. Next to the telephone was the good luck and be careful note that he'd left for Lynn that morning in case he missed her before she left which he now read with mounting panic. By 10.30pm that evening, with still no sign or any word from Lynn, and after ringing around and checking with all of her friends and acquaintances to no avail, Derek and Spencer went to Catford Police Station and reported her as a missing person. 
Suzanne, meanwhile, remained at the Rogers house in case Lynn telephoned or arrived home. The obvious concern and distress that was shown by Spencer and Derek, the type of girl that Lynn was described as being, plus the known circumstances of Lynn's itinerary that day, right away made this seem to police like this wasn't a run-of-the-mill missing person inquiry, and the details were passed immediately on to Scotland Yard's three-area major incident pool. Receiving the report, Detective Superintendent Douglas Old read it with a growing sense of unease. Usually if a 17-year-old goes off missing somewhere, it's due to having a row at home or a whirlwind romance where they're swept off their feet by someone. It may be falling in with a bad crowd or being involved in something unlawful or illicit, but there was nothing like that in Lynn's life. She was a happy, dynamic and sensible girl who'd set off that day to a job interview. Two things especially niggled at him and made the unease grow. The first was that Lynn was horse mad and was devoted to her chestnut coloured horse, Duke. Without fail, she'd go to Frogpool Manor stables at nearby Chislehurst each day where he was kept to feed him, groom him and exercise him. It was a pastime that she took very seriously. Indeed, one of the reasons why she wanted a better paying job was to help with the costly upkeep of her beloved pet. But a check had revealed that Lynn had failed to turn up at the stables that Wednesday evening. It was the first time that anyone could remember it not being there and this had obviously further alarmed her family and boyfriend. The second worry was the suspicious-sounding job interview. Like Lynn's father Derek and her boyfriend, Superintendent Old thought that this just didn't sound quite right when he read the account of Lynn's proposed movements that Wednesday. It did indeed sound too good to be true. Before long, he was at the Rogers home in Catford speaking to her father and sister Suzanne, and a missing persons inquiry began. A photograph of Lynn was selected and a description of the clothes she was wearing, plus details about her car and events known about her disappearance was circulated to the national press and TV, and an appeal was made for anyone who'd seen Lynn anywhere at any time on Wednesday to come forward with information. Following this appeal, later that Thursday morning, a member of the public spotted Lynn's car parked near Hither Green Station and reported it to police. A forensic examination of the car revealed nothing. It was still parked neatly, it was locked and there were no signs of a struggle inside. It was exactly as though Lynn had parked it, intending to return to it later that Wednesday. Ticket operators and rail staff who'd been at work at Charing Cross Station the previous day were spoken to, but it was like looking for a needle in a haystack asking them to remember a specific passenger due to the amount of people who passed through there each day. It was also long before the widespread CCTV coverage was in place like that we have today. On Saturday the 7th of September, a press conference was organised at Scotland Yard, where a visibly anxious and distressed Derek and Suzanne Rogers made an impassioned plea for anyone able to help with the whereabouts of Lynn to come forward. The story of the attractive missing girl who'd vanished whilst on her way to an appointment had been headline news from that Thursday, and press speculation perhaps inevitably linked the case to that of a similar disappearance five years before, again from South London, that of the missing estate agent Susie Lamplew, a familiar case that we have of course looked at on the show a couple of months ago. Police examined a possible link to Susie's case, but they couldn't find anything to suggest that the disappearances were connected. And meanwhile, since the first public appeal, police had received scores of potential sightings of Lynn. 
Each turned out to be a false trail or a genuine case of mistaken identity, and each day the picture beamed out from the front pages of every newspaper. But as each day passed with no sign of Lynn or any word from her, concern grew, and in police minds they knew that the longer that passed, the less likely that there was to be a happy outcome. This must have also been in the minds of Lynn's family and loved ones, and it really must be something so terrible that you can't proper imagine it unless you're experiencing it. And it's an experience that I hope no one listening has ever had to go through. Then on Monday the 9th of September, Detective Superintendent Old got the news that he was by now sadly expecting, but all the same dreading. A telex came through to Scotland Yard. The body of a teenage girl had just been found in a wood in East Sussex. Before long, Detective Superintendent Old, who due to the location that the body had been found at, and the location Lynn was known to have been supposedly heading for, was 99% sure that the tragic missing girl had been found, was stood at the crime scene with the incident commander, Detective Superintendent Michael Bennion of Sussex Police. One look was enough for Old to know that he was sadly right, and the missing persons inquiry was no longer that, but was about to become a murder one. Lynn's body lay just a few yards from a quiet country lane which led into a wood, part of the grounds of Rothersfield Manor in Rothersfield, which is just three miles short of the East Sussex town of Crowborough, and it was about 40 miles from where Lynn left the car to get on a train to Charing Cross Station. It had been discovered early that morning by John Rumans, a handyman employed by the Rothersfield Manor estate who'd been carrying out hedging and ditching work alongside nearby Rothersgate Lane. He'd come to clear a patch of brambles, but had recoiled when just a few yards inside the thicket, just away from the roadside, he saw the lifeless, fully clothed body of a teenage girl lying face down. Lynn's body had been placed in a patch of brambles and leaves and branches had been collected and arranged in a half-hearted attempt to try to conceal the body. She was, as said, still fully clothed, still wearing the black business suit and white blouse that she'd set off in five days before, but there was no sign of her bag containing her purse and passport amongst other items. These were never found. As the area was sealed off on a murder inquiry, led now by Detective Superintendent Bennion got underway, Detective Superintendent Old was left to go and break the tragic news to Lynn's family. At Eastbourne Mortuary, a post-mortem examination was carried out by Dr David Rouse and it revealed that Lynn's cause of death had been strangulation between one and four days previously. Severe bruising and mottling of the skin around Lynn's throat showed where a killer had gripped her throat with bare hands and had choked the life out of her. The post-mortem showed no signs of any sexual assault and Lynn had not been raped, but there were other marks on her body. A livid bruise on her forehead showed where the killer had battered her and there was also a strong, clearly visible bite mark on her chin. Even though she'd not been raped, the positioning of the teeth marks seemed to indicate that they had occurred during or shortly after some kind of attempt at sex. Perhaps Lynn had rejected and resisted any advances, thus sealing her fate. Forensic dentist Dr Bernard Grant Sims examined the bite marks to Lynn's chin and after checking on the body over a couple of days he noticed that the lividity of the bite mark became more prominent. Within three days he was able to take a workable impression of the marks as they were very deep and very clear. 
Whoever had made the bite also likely had a missing upper tooth at the front of their mouth. The impressions that he managed to gain were that good that Dr. Grant Sims told police, find a suspect who has a bite to match them and you have your man, guaranteed. Just now, police had to find him. In a press conference some days after Lynn had been found, a devastated Derek Rogers said, I want people to keep trying to get this person so I can have my Lynn back and put her with her mum. It's my daughter this time, next time it could be somebody else's. So the missing person case had now become a murder inquiry, and because of where Lynn had been found, it fell under the boundaries of Sussex Police. However, liaison was kept with Detective Superintendent Old's team back at Scotland Yard, and there were several avenues of inquiry that police could pursue. Lynn had sent a CV and covering letter to over a hundred possible employers who would all have to be traced and checked, but of course, at the top of this list was the company called Africa Hinterland, the firm that the mystery company director had called Lynn claiming to be from and had arranged the interview. Primarily, it was still of the utmost importance to establish the identity of the man Lynn had gone to meet that Wednesday, because he was now the prime suspect in a murder and the major person of interest police needed to eliminate from inquiries. There was, of course, the possibility that Lynn had been snatched by a random attacker following her interview, and that the interviewer was not the killer, but of course, he'd need to be traced first and eliminated before this was considered. But Africa Hinterland, the company he'd claimed to be a director of, although it was real, it was found to have gone out of business long before Lynn had been contacted. So how then had he gotten hold of her name and telephone number? The company had been operating from a large business complex at Greenwich, but when detectives went around to the premises, they found nothing but confirmation that Africa Hinterland had indeed folded several months before Lynn had even sent out his CVs. Further inquiries revealed that this company director had called Lynn's house on no less than four occasions, twice speaking to Lynn herself, but on the other two occasions that he'd called, she'd been out at the stables, and so the telephone calls had been taken by her sister Suzanne. Suzanne spent several hours with police going over the conversations that she'd had with the caller on these occasions, and she described him as sounding quite charming, confident and well-spoken. Plausible is a word that she used. There was one thing in particular that she remembered that had convinced her that the man was genuinely involved with the airline business. During one of the calls, she remembered that she could hear in the background what sounded like the bustle and noise of an air traffic control operations room and the caller had even at one point in the conversation broken off to deal with what he claimed to Suzanne was urgent business. As she waited and listened, she'd clearly heard him say in the background, Flight 101, prepare to take off, before he'd returned to their conversation full of apologies for the interruption. At both Gatwick and Shoreham, CID officers checked dozens of companies involved with business aviation charters and air traffic control, and inquiries here revealed that indeed Africa Hinterland had operated from there and were remembered. Detectives managed to trace all former Africa Hinterland employees following this, but all were to be ultimately eliminated from the inquiry. None had arranged an interview with Lynn, and none of these could shed any light on who a killer could possibly be. So how had the killer, who police now were certain was the bogus interviewer, gotten her details? 
Meanwhile, Suzanne Rogers even took part in a reconstruction where she bravely dressed in similar clothes to those Lynn was wearing when she was last seen and travelled from Hither Green to Charing Cross on a train, with police handing out flyers to passengers as she did so. Very brave and very difficult thing for her to have done that must have been, mustn't it, babe? Alongside this, the appeals in the press and on television were continuing, and they were producing results. Several important witnesses were about to come forward. A man came forward who said that he'd seen a girl fitting Lynn's description talking to a smartly dressed man in a coffee bar at Charing Cross Station at about 10am on the Wednesday morning. The witness had actually sat at the next table to the pair as he waited for a train, and he'd noticed that the man was a heavy smoker, chain-smoking small cheroot cigars, and the witness particularly remembered the couple because the man had irritated him by the way he was fiddling with the cellophane wrappers of the cigars. Sure that we all have little pet hates such as that, scraping a knife across a plate or the feel of polystyrene or something, stuff that goes through you. Mine personally is seeing bad grammar and spelling that goes uncorrected, or having a door open when I go to sleep. Trivial things, but I hate them. This witness was able to give excellent descriptions of the couple, and it sounded indeed like Lynn and the mystery company director that she was meeting. The man was described as being in his mid-thirties to mid-forties, was white with swept-back brown hair, and was short, possibly only about five feet four or five inches in height, but stockily built. He was well-dressed, wearing a smart, expensive-looking double-breasted dark blue suit, and was carrying a briefcase. The girl was described as being in her late teens to early twenties, smartly dressed and attractive, and from the snippets of conversation the witness overheard, he was of the impression that the man was quite nervous, and that the couple had either only just met that day, or didn't know each other very well at all. There was enough information gleaned here for a police artist to begin to make a composite image of him, which was then to be issued to the press. The thought that this was Lynn and her mystery man was in fact all but confirmed when two boys who'd been at school with Lynn also came forward to police to say that they'd seen her that morning. It had again been at Charing Cross around 10am, sat with a man whose description matched that that the first witness had given. Both Superintendents Old and Bennion were certain that each of these sightings were of Lynn and the mystery airline executive. By the 12th of September they were confident enough that with the descriptions gained from each sighting of the man, they could go ahead and issue the artist's impression of him. Another witness, Thomas Reynolds, a taxi driver who'd been waiting for fares near the concourse outside the station, came forward with details of another sighting. He'd noticed Lynn standing on the station approach, and had especially remembered her because, in Thomas's own words, she looked so striking. He then saw her get into a car driven by an older, smartly dressed man, which he described to detectives. It looked odd. He was very short, and the car almost looked too big for him. Thomas described the car as being a C-registered blue Vauxhall, a Carlton or possibly a Cavalier model, and he'd watched as the vehicle pulled out and headed off into the traffic. Thomas Reynolds had thought little more of this sighting at the time until news of Lynn's murder reached the press, and then knowing that he may be holding crucial information, he actually went around car dealerships examining different models of vehicle and the shadings of blue that they were, until he was certain that the car he'd seen Lynn, because he was again certain it was her, the car he'd seen her get into was a Vauxhall Carlton or Cavalier. 
so police now had a good description of the man plus details of a possible vehicle. But in the meantime, yet another witness had come forward. David Sanderson, a telecommunications specialist, contacted the police with some fascinating new information. Late one morning in early September, he'd been trying to make a telephone call from one of the booths of a public phone box bank in Crawley near Gatwick Airport when his attention was distracted by the conversation that the man in the adjoining booth was having. The man was describing a job opportunity to someone over the phone. He'd mentioned someone called Lynn, and in his hand David could see that he held a paper copy of a CV. Also in his hand was a recording device of some sort. The caller was talking about a job with an executive aviation company based at Gatwick which involved looking after high-powered executives on short-haul flights to Europe. The countries France, Switzerland, Holland and Belgium were some of the places that were mentioned, David remembered. He also remembered hearing that the job carried a salary of £15,000 per annum. David had heard Lynn's likely killer making the fateful arrangements to lure her to her death. He wasn't just a busybody earwigging on other people's conversations, it was memorable for David because of how the man appeared. Plus he thought it strange that someone claiming to be a high-powered business executive was using a grotty public phone to conduct and arrange a business meeting. David told police, I turned to look because I could not understand why somebody with such an apparently high-powered company should be discussing a job of that nature with a prospective employee and using a public payphone to make the call. When I glanced to see who was speaking, it was not the executive type that I would have imagined. He looked unkempt and sweaty. The date David had overheard this conversation was the 3rd of September the very same day that Lynn had taken a call from the mystery man to arrange a meeting for the following morning. A forensic examination of the box David identified as the one the man had been using was made, but again this was a non-starter due to the period of time that had passed and the amount of people who'd used the box in the meantime. Despite this, police were now convinced they were getting very close to Lynn's killer. There were echoes of the Susie Lamplew case in their ears, smartly dressed men and smartly dressed attractive young women being lured away and disappearing. It's obviously going to be lumped together, isn't it? But unlike Susie, Lynn had now been found, sadly. And this was a hunt for a killer, not a missing person. And then an additional piece of information from the public was to arrive that was to prove crucial. A farmer who owned land very close to where Lynn's body was found, Ray Evans, told police that on the day before Lynn's body had been found, he'd noticed a car parked on a grass verge in the vicinity. The farmer had had a lot of trouble with poachers over the previous few weeks, and thinking that they may be about again, had suspicions and had made a note of the description of the car, its make and model, but more importantly, the registration number of it. It was a blue C-registered, Vauxhall Carlton. When traced, the car was found to be registered to 36-year-old Wayne Scott Singleton, who was currently unemployed but had formerly worked as an auto paint sprayer and repairer, and who lived in a run-down council flat at Wilkinson Court in the West Sussex town of Broadfield. He was a married father of two children, although estranged from his wife for a number of years and was at the time in a long-term relationship with a girlfriend. Singleton was well known to the police as a petty crook, 
but he was better known to them as Andre Reich, having changed his name to Wayne Scott Singleton by deed poll some two years previously. He did have his criminal history, as we've said, having no less than 18 convictions, but all for crimes of a petty nature such, of a, such as assault, burglary, and a possession of a small quantity of cannabis. The most serious offence in his past had been when he'd threatened another man with a loaded shotgun some years before. But apart from a short spell in Borstal when he was a teenager, Singleton had never served any time in prison for any of these offences. On the morning of the 29th of September 1991, Singleton was arrested at his home and taken to Crawley Police Station, where the hunt for Lynn's killer was being run from. Like the man Lynn had been seen with on the day she disappeared, Singleton was short, dark-haired and stocky. Normally clean-shaven, he was now in the process of growing a beard and moustache. Forensic teams who searched his home took away samples of the living room carpet of the flat. But the search of the flat also revealed some unusual items for a paint sprayer to have about. In a wardrobe, they found a number of crisp white shirts with epaulets, similar to those worn by airline pilots. There was also a dark-coloured raincoat with four gold stripes on it that denoted the rank of an airline captain, a pair of gold captain's wings, a pilot's hat, and a radio scanner that, when tested, was found to be tuned into the frequencies used by air traffic control. It was obvious that Singleton was an aviation enthusiast with a clear interest in planes and flying. Meanwhile, when he was questioned, Singleton denied knowing anything about Lynn Rogers. He'd never met her or called her and had nothing whatsoever to do with her disappearance and certainly nothing to do with her murder. On the day that Lynn had vanished, Singleton claimed he'd been at the home of his estranged wife, Patricia Reich, for most of the day, which Mrs. Reich was to confirm although she was unsure about the time that he'd arrived. The inquiry team continued with a patient but firm interrogation of him and asked Singleton when he'd last been to Rothersfield, to which Singleton replied that as far as he could recall, he'd never once been to such a place in his life. They also questioned him as to whether he'd ever pretended to be a pilot or to work for an airline company. Singleton did admit that he was interested in planes and had had a number of flying lessons, even claiming to have owned a microlight plane at one point, but he denied ever having pretended to be something to do with the aviation business. He explained off all of the paraphernalia discovered at his flat as him simply being a collector and enthusiast. Singleton was placed on two separate identity parades, but both the taxi driver Thomas Reynolds, who'd seen the man police suspected was Singleton outside Charing Cross Station, and David Sanderson, who'd overheard the scruffy, sweaty man in the telephone kiosk, both failed to pick him out when they attended these. Singleton denied any involvement whatsoever in the crime, and detectives twice had to apply for an extension to the 36-hour detention period that they were allowed to hold Singleton as a suspect with, without charging him. After three days of intensive questioning, however, police eventually had to release Singleton on the 3rd of October. The day after he was released, he gave an interview to the Daily Express newspaper. He told them, Lynn's family have my deepest sympathy. Their hopes that the killer had been caught have been dashed. I have no connection with her or her family. The first time I set eyes on her was when I saw her picture in the newspaper. I don't blame the police. They were only doing their job but their mistake could ruin my life. After this is over, I'll have to rebuild my life. It's been totally shattered. 
But whilst he had been released, police were working around the clock to prove his guilt because they were 100% sure that they had had the right man in custody. Fibres found on Lynn's clothing were a strong match to those taken from the living room carpet in Singleton's flat, as well as some that were found on the front passenger seat of his Vauxhall Carlton. But whilst they were a strong match, they were too common to be anything except additional evidence rather than definitive of his guilt in Lynn's abduction and murder. But there were other coincidences, far too many that fitted all points of interest that the police had. There was the pile of paraphernalia found at Singleton's flat and the sighting of his car in close proximity to where Lynn was found at a time her body was likely to have been dumped. He fitted the general description of the man seen with Lynn and a check of his movements revealed that Singleton had cashed his unemployment benefit check at the post office near Gatwick on the morning of the 3rd of September, less than a 100 yards from the telephone box where David Sanderson had overheard the conversation in the next booth. Now how much coincidence can that be? Are you unconvinced? Okay, then try this. Police had also discovered that Singleton used to have a car panel beating and paint spraying firm registered as the Casualty Car Doctor, which had only a couple of months before closed down. By a strange coincidence, if you like, the Casualty Car Doctor was based at a business park in Greenwich. It happened to be the exact same business park and in the same complex as the now defunct Africa Hinterland Travel Company, and what was more, both the Casualty Car Doctor and Africa Hinterland had shared the same mail distribution system. All posts received for companies based at the complex was placed into a post room together where they all had an individual mail slot for collection. It was feasible that companies that had long since ceased to exist would still periodically get mail to their last known address. Had Singleton been collecting any mail addressed to his former company, and had he obtained Lynn's details through this, through mail innocently addressed to Africa Hinterland? There was also another possibility. Singleton had a bit of a chaotic private life, spending a lot of time with his estranged wife Patricia, but when he wasn't with her, he was with another woman, his girlfriend Kim Arnold. Again, call it coincidence, but Kim lived just 200 yards from where Lynn lived with her father and sister in Catford. It was thought possible that Singleton may have acquired Lynn's address and recognising it as being in proximity to somewhere that he knew well and would often be, had then kept watch on her house and had seen and stalked the teenager. Police then also looked again at the bite injuries that Lynn had received to her face. The bite mark that had been left on her chin was deep, and a clear impression had been able to have been taken. It clearly showed that her killer had a missing front tooth at the front of his upper jaw. And guess who else happened to have a missing tooth in exactly the same place that he wore a plate containing a false tooth to conceal? Scott Singleton. Singleton was found to have a false tooth plate in his upper jaw when he was examined, and police asked him if he was prepared to provide a cast of his upper and lower bite impressions, to which he refused point blank. Now on a bit of a side note, I have a plate myself, and I will as long as I live never forget the disgusting process that you have to go through for the dentist to take a mould to make the said plate. 
you got to bite down on this disgusting mound of clay on a couple of different sessions for the dentist to get the mould exactly right for the contours of your mouth and for it to fit comfortably. So I can understand someone not wanting to do that. But I of course had to have mine because of my love of sweeties not to eliminate me from a murder. And when you do get your plate, it takes a bit to get used to. At first it's totally vile and uncomfortable. And the lesson there guys is don't love sweeties too much like I do because I could absolutely live on them right now. Police knew that they needed a complete impression of Singleton's upper and lower jaws if they were going to be able to prove an exact match to the bite mark, so they set about obtaining his dental records. When they found his dentist, at the surgery, Superintendent Bennion was told that Singleton had last been in for treatment in November 1990 because he needed a new plate creating after the one he'd originally had had been accidentally trodden on and broken by police, who were at the time searching his home on another matter. But old plaster casts of teeth were not kept, as there was simply no room to store them on the premises. The disappointed detective was just on the verge of leaving, when in a classic Columbo moment, the dentist receptionist called him back saying, Just one more thing. She'd actually found the old cast taken of Singleton's teeth, it had been one of a handful that had actually been kept, and she explained why. Because when Singleton had come in for his treatment, he'd been such an awkward and argumentative patient, it was decided to keep a copy in case he came back in and complained that there was a problem with the replacement one that he'd been given. Both the dentist and receptionist were convinced that he'd do this. The impressions were quickly rushed to the murder squad incident room and the casts taken from Singleton by his dentist were carefully compared with those made from the impression of the bite marks made to Lynn's face. After examination, Dr Bernard Sims declared them to be an absolutely perfect match. He was convinced of it. On the 10th of October, a team of murder squad detectives were back at Wilkinson Court where they re-arrested Scott Singleton. He was taken once again to Crawley Police Station, and upon his arrival, he was charged with the murder of Lynn Rogers and remanded in custody. Scott Singleton came to trial nearly nine months later at Lewes Crown Court on the 1st of July 1992, charged with the murder of Lynn Rogers, to which he pleaded not guilty. Prosecuting counsel Michael Seabrook QC, opening for the Crown, told the court, this was a gruesome killing of a young woman who'd left home to meet a man at Charing Cross Station, full of excitement about a new job prospect. Five days later, her body was found hidden under brambles. She'd been strangled almost certainly in the process of a sexually motivated attack, which went horribly wrong. A statement which made me ponder the question really, can a sexually motivated attack ever go right? It's just, it doesn't seem to make any sense that really. Of course it's wrong, it's a horrendous thing to do. Mr Seabrook then went on to say that it was thought that Singleton had managed to obtain a copy of Lynn's CV because his firm, the Casualty Car Doctor, had shared the same mailroom facility at the Greenwich Business Park as the defunct travel company Africa Hinterland that had had Lynn's details forwarded to it. It would have been simple for Singleton to intercept any mail that, even after the company had gone out of business, was still bound to arrive for them. The court then heard how it was alleged that over the space of a few weeks, Singleton had possibly stalked Lynn, knowing from intercepted posts that she lived near to his girlfriend Kim Arnold, and on seeing her, 
decided that she was someone he wanted for sexual purposes. To gain this, using his fascination with planes and flying, Singleton had then created and carried out some sort of fantasy posing as the director of an aviation firm. He contacted Lynn at home on a number of occasions to this end and had ultimately managed to entice a young woman and turn her head with tales of a possible glamorous job offer for her, complete with exotic travel and a big salary. Where all the while Singleton was nothing more than a sad fantasist who was unemployed and a predator with just one thing on his mind. I love the command of English that these QCs always have. It's always great, isn't it? Police officers concerned with the hunt for Lynn's killer also gave evidence, as did witnesses David Sanderson and Thomas Reynolds about their sightings of the man in the telephone box and the man driving the car that Lynn had gotten into, respectively. Dr Grant Sims also gave testimony about the bite mark that he'd taken an impression of from Lynn's chin that had been left by a killer and all of the points that proved it to be a perfect match to that of Scott Singleton's dental impression. The court heard how Singleton was likely to have had this pilot fantasy for a substantial period of time. He was one of these all-the-gear-no-idea types, you know. And two weeks into the trial, sensational new evidence was presented to the court in a dramatic manner. Kim Arnold, Singleton's girlfriend, had planned to appear to give evidence as a defence witness but when she arrived in court, she had an extra piece of evidence with her, which was presented to the jury. It was a tape recording of Scott Singleton pretending to be an air traffic controller. The recording was one of actual transmissions between real air traffic controllers and airline pilots. Singleton had been listening in and had managed to record one of these that he'd intercepted from his realistic Pro 34 scanner. He then just dubbed his own voice over the top of the recording, making him appear to be an air traffic controller. At one point he was even heard to utter, Papa 101, taxi please, Roger Papa 101, cleared to JFK. Kim Arnold told the court how she remembered that these tapes existed after hearing earlier evidence during the trial of how the caller to Lynn's home had broken off conversation with his sister Suzanne to instruct Flight 101 to take off. When questioned about this, a clearly flustered and embarrassed Singleton offered the excuse that the tape had been one that he'd made several years previously, long before he was learning to fly, because he wanted to practice radio procedures. He also explained off possession of the raincoat with airline pilot stripes on it as one he'd bought on a whim because he was caught out in heavy rain one day, and the pilot uniform found in his flat because he was an enthusiast. Singleton's wife Patricia even admitted under cross-examination that on the night of the 3rd of September 1991, the night before Lynn went missing, she'd ironed a pilot-style white shirt for Singleton, complete with four-bar epaulets, apparently not even asking why. And he still denied all prosecution claims that he lived the make-believe life of a pilot. Come off it, I mean... How much more of a clear fantasist could this guy be? After a three-week trial, on the 22nd of July 1992, it took a jury of six men and six women just four hours to arrive at their unanimous verdict. Scott Singleton was found guilty of the murder of Lynn Rogers, and following the verdict, presiding judge Mr Justice Elliot told 36-year-old Singleton 
that he was passing the sentence prescribed by law, saying, I do so remaining as the jury must, in ignorance of what actually happened after you'd taken that girl into your custody. That is a matter that gives me grave concern as to your dangerousness. Singleton was then sentenced to life imprisonment to serve a minimum of 15 years before ever being considered for parole. As he was being taken down, Lynn's devastated father Derek made a lunge for him from his seat behind the dock shouting, I'll kill you, I will have you one way or another. As three prison officers restrained him and his eldest daughter Suzanne sobbed, Mr Rogers shouted, I'm going to kill him, I will get him one way or another. Life, is that all he gets after what he's done to me, my family, my daughter, and you put him away for 20 years? I would have shouted exactly, exactly the same thing there, I'm completely sure. Michael Mansfield QC for Singleton said that Singleton would appeal against the verdict. And after it was announced, Detective Superintendent Michael Bennion, who'd led the murder inquiry, said that Singleton had stalked Lynn and described the verdict as true and just. He added, Singleton was a cruel and calculating killer who would have struck again because of the way he lured this girl to her death. There was evidence that Singleton had tried similar things before, but his previous victims had seen through him. Eventually he found Lynn, who was young and naive and was taken in by him. We don't know exactly what happened, but we believe he must have held her captive for several days. Mr. Bennion further said that during the murder inquiry, he was disturbed by the number of telephone calls from women who'd been through similar experiences but had managed to escape. It made us realise how widespread this practice of recruitment is, especially in a recession, he said. He advised women applying for jobs through agencies to check the credentials of all prospective employers, look for headed notepaper, always take a telephone number, and then ring back to check that they exist. If a job sounds too good to be true, then it has to be suspicious. Good and solid advice that, isn't it, really? Sadly, it came too late for Lynn Rogers. Singleton continued to protest his innocence, even in the face of all the evidence proving his guilt, and he appealed his conviction, but it was turned down. It emerged after the trial that Singleton, or Andre Reich as he was formerly known, lived as a Walter Mitty character in a bizarre world of make-believe. The type of person that, if you've been to the moon, he's been there on his mountain bike, you know? He'd even changed his name to Wayne Scott Singleton because he thought it sounded much more glamorous than Andre Reich. I don't know if I'd quite agree there myself, like. He did think that he was irresistible to all women, trying to impress would-be girlfriends and partners with tales of his glamorous yet fictional exploits and he was full of some proper whoppers, this guy. Among some of the tales that he came out with about himself were he was great-grandson of the Red Baron, First World War flying legend Manfred von Richthofen, he was half German and half Belgian, or half French and half German, depending on whichever suited him at the time and who he was talking to. He was disowned by his father for joining the RAF, which he was subsequently discharged from after a flying accident landed him in hospital for almost a year, during which time his wife left him and ran off with his best friend. He owned an aircraft and a Chinese restaurant in Amsterdam. He was an international private detective, and he was a television executive working for Channel 4. 
Not quite on the scale of my old mate Bill, I don't think, but not far off in the talking bollocks stakes. In reality, Singleton was born Andre Paul Reich in Yorkshire in 1955 and became an apprentice carpenter when he'd left school. He'd never been an RAF pilot at all, as I'm sure you'll be unsurprised to hear. Reich met his wife Patricia in the early 1970s and the couple had married in 1975, but a steady relationship hadn't kept him out of trouble. Reich had criminal convictions going back to 1971, including numerous offences relating to cars, burglaries and thefts, convictions for assault in 1975, unlawful and malicious wounding in 1982, carrying a firearm and ammunition in 1983, and assault causing actual bodily harm in 1985. A daughter was born to the couple in 1977 and a son in 1979 but this newfound family responsibility still didn't shake Reich into living in the real world. Ever still the fantasist, he kept up the stories of his fictional RAF career to his wife, who believed that he'd obtained a pilot's license and could fly light aircraft. On one occasion, Reich chartered a light aircraft to fly to a funeral that was being held in Belgium, and his wife, who was sat behind him in the plane, believed that he was the one flying the craft. Now, he didn't correct her in any way, but Singleton was merely a passenger sat in the co-pilot seat. So if he had kept up living this make-believe life just in his own head with his fantasies of being a pilot, Singleton could have been harmless enough. An unpleasant character and not someone who'd be top of your friend list, sure, but harmless enough. But somewhere down the line, this sad fantasist stepped over it and the dark part of him used this fantasy life and became a killer as he's never admitted and continued to deny any responsibility for the murder of Lynn Rogers, exactly what she went through before being left in that undergrowth has never been established. There is the chilling possibility that she was held captive for up to four days before being killed, and where that ultimately happened has also never clearly been established. These are thoughts that have haunted Lynn's loved ones for 26 years now. After Lynn's death, her grieving father Derek threw himself into working for the charity Parents of Murdered Children, who he turned to for support about how to cope following Lynn's death. He became an instrumental member, along with others who'd all suffered loss such as this, who helped set up SAM, Support After Murder and Manslaughter, which is a registered charity that was established in 1992. By the beginning of 2013, the membership of SAM stood at over 4,000 members nationwide and from their website is now one of the longest established and most experienced charities working specifically in the field of supporting families and friends bereaved by the loss of a loved one. A link to the SAM website for those interested in learning more about what such a worthwhile organisation can be found with this week's show notes. It of course didn't bring Derek back his daughter but I like to think that at least something positive came out of the otherwise senseless, tragic crime, and that by helping others, it ultimately helped him and his family, who'd already had a massive tragic loss just three years before Lynn's murder. I think he's quite a remarkable and dignified man. And the other one, well, he isn't remarkable in the slightest. A pathetic loser who coped with his own inadequacy by living most of the time in a fantasy world. Wayne Scott Singleton, or Andre Reich as he's once again known now, remains in prison to this day. 
although he's long served the minimum recommended term. Because he's never admitted culpability despite overwhelming evidence proving his guilt in the murder of Lynn Rogers, he continues serving his life sentence. It may never be known exactly when or why he crossed the line from living in cloud cuckoo land as a fantasist and became a killer. As I said, he continues to this day to deny his responsibility. He can't talk about it, he won't talk about it. Prison hasn't been kind to him either. 18 years after being sentenced, he badly broke his leg during a fall at Her Majesty's Prison Long Larting and had to get about using a stick from then on. But Reich attempted to use this as the basis to get his prisoner category downgraded from Category A to Category B status. In 2012, he went to the High Court in London in a publicly funded legal fight to do this, claiming that his broken leg reduces his risk to the public. The court heard Reich had long since served the 15-year minimum term set on his life sentence, but was still seen as potentially highly dangerous because he'd never admitted his crime. Despite a prison panel recommending he be downgraded in April 2011, something which has seemed a bit like deja vu in recent episodes of the show, the government's director of high security, Danny McAllister, had blocked the move, ordering that he remain under the tightest security conditions. His decision stated, We are still no nearer to understanding the motivations behind his carefully planned act of violence against a young woman. The director also noted that his offending history had also evidenced a propensity for violence. Quite sensible, yeah? But Bernard Richmond QC for Reich told the High Court that too little regard had been given to his reduced mobility due to his broken leg when deciding on his prison status, saying, If someone is dependent on a stick for their mobility and they are in pain, then that is a very significant matter when considering risk. One way to manage Mr. Reich's risk is to take his stick away. Lawyers for the Director of High Security conceded at the time that 57-year-old Reich was no spring chicken, but said there was no clear medical evidence to suggest his risk of reoffending was reduced. Judge Stephen Mayles QC ruled in favour of Reich's complaints, saying that they were arguable and granted him permission for a full judicial review of the decision not to downgrade him which was held later that year, but it was unsuccessful and he remained in Category A status. His mobility deteriorated further following this, which a couple of years later led to him being back in the headlines when he attempted to sue the Ministry of Justice for £42,000 in damages, claiming that the toilet arrangements at Long Larton Prison had violated his human rights and this was a case of disability discrimination. Because he now used two sticks, Reich claimed that squatting over a bucket in his cell to go to the toilet was too difficult. He didn't have a toilet of his own in his cell, meaning that he had to rely on prison officers answering his call and letting him out to use the conveniences, which often led to waits of two to three hours, and on one occasion, he was left for 14 hours without being able to go. During this wait, Reich said he was left in extreme agony, and it resulted in an embarrassing accident, he said. After considering the case, Judge Mark Dite dismissed Reich's claim, saying, He has not established that he has been subjected to degrading treatment or that there has been a high intensity of harm or suffering. There was no evidence that Reich had made any complaints about sanitation which were not then addressed properly by the prison before starting his claim, he said. Therefore, 
the claims for breach of the European Convention on Human Rights and Equality Act 2010 are dismissed, the judge concluded. Reich is now in Franklin Prison in Durham, and I neither know nor care whether he has a bog in his cell. He can rot there completely. It is possible that the case of Singleton, Reich, whatever you want to call him, was also the inspiration in part for one of TV Soap's most famous ever plots. Listeners in the UK of a certain age who watch Coronation Street will of course remember Deirdre Barlow, you know, her with the world's biggest glasses and tendons in her neck, being completely taken in by a smooth talker who posed as an airline pilot and who then left her to take the fall for several frauds that he had unknowingly implicated her in, resulting in her being jailed for fraud. This led to a real-life national outcry where questions were even asked in the UK Parliament about it, yep, seriously, and a campaign called Free the Weatherfield One was launched for a soap character. Yes, yeah, seriously, seriously. And before long, in case you even care, Deirdre was freed and she was back in the arms of top shagger Ken Barlow for a happy ending. Tell me what you guys think about Singleton, why you think someone does something like that. I think it's a whole different level of callousness and evil, isn't it? To go to lengths like that to manipulate someone for the purposes of sex and a young woman just trying to better herself became the target of a power trip for a twisted and devious sexual deviant who doesn't even have the decency to face up to what he did and who knows what else he's done, lies that he's told and people that he may have manipulated for goodness only knows what purposes with his very rich fantasy life. I hope that you found the episode informative and interesting and you can get in touch as usual should you wish to in the discussion thread that's now up in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group. I look forward to reading what you guys think and your opinions and everything. Just a reminder also that you can catch the show for extra episodes amongst other things over on Patreon either by using the link in the show notes or seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over there on the Patreon site. Please get in touch also if you have an idea for a case for a show that you think would be a good fit for an episode. Thank you so much for joining me all. I shall be back next week with another episode on Truer Crime Thursday. Keep it in your diary. And I hope until we next speak, you all have safe and good times. I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, saying take care guys, and I'll catch you soon. Goodbye for now.